Welcome to the Brain People Podcast, a show where four mental health experts team up to bring you practical tools for overcoming mental health challenges. The Brain People don't replace your doctor or therapist, but we will give you some extra tools to help you on your journey. So join us as we fight mental illness, one episode at a time. I'm Dr. Daniel Binus. Welcome to the Brain People Podcast. And I'm a psychiatrist, and today I'm joined by Dr. Neil Nedley. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here, Dr. Binus. And uh, Dr. Neil Nedley uh, is an internal medicine physician. He's also a uh, world-renowned speaker. He's an author, a researcher, and uh, most importantly for me, he's been a wonderful mentor and a friend. So thank you, Dr. Nedley, for, for being here. And, you know, I think back uh, when I first met you, I was actually in my psychiatric uh, residency training. And, and uh, through that process, it, it was a very interesting process because I kind of had, you know, this picture of this is how um, psychiatry is going to be. And I'm going to help all these people and all of this. And, and, and to be frank, I got a little disillusioned because a lot of my training, uh, I got good training, so I'm not trying to knock that, but a lot of it was focused on treating uh, just symptoms with medication. And uh, I saw kind of this revolving uh, door. And so uh, through that process, uh, I was actually introduced uh, to you um, uh, you, you, we have family uh, connections and uh, you really helped to revitalize my interest in mental health because you helped me to see that we can do mental health intervention in a different way. And that really excited me as a resident and it still excites me to this day. So I just want to say personal thank you, Dr. Nedley, for that. Well, I'm glad I was a part of it. I remember also the first uh, time you were rotating through, through you mentioned that you were going to finish your psychiatry and then go into a family medicine uh, is because of that disillusionment. And I was thinking, boy, he needs to stay in psychiatry. <laughs> he just needs to incorporate these sorts of things. And you ended up staying in psychiatry. And I assume you're pretty happy you did that. Oh, I'm very happy. I couldn't be happier. I mean, just seeing the lives uh, turned around is is the most rewarding uh, thing in, in, in life. And uh, just to fill our audience in, what happened was uh, Dr. Nedley actually invited me to uh, observe and uh, participate in his 10-day residential depression and anxiety recovery program. At the time, it was uh, in, in uh, Oklahoma. It's now been moved uh, to Weimar Institute here in, in Northern California. But just going through that process and watching lives transformed from natural methods of intervention for mental health in just 10 days was phenomenal for me. And, uh, you know, when I looked at all the psychiatric research, I had not seen anything like that. And then to see it in person just made me overjoyed. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so Dr. Nedley, uh, our audience might be wondering, okay, so here's an internal medicine physician who uh, started doing depression, anxiety recovery programs how did that all come about? <laughs> well, actually, very early in my career, I was seeing a 30-something-year-old successfully employed woman who had a lot of physical ailments. And she had been from doctor to doctor and heard about me moving into the area. And, of course, one of my uh, specialties is the difficult-to-diagnose patient. So I was looking at all of her records, looking at all of her symptoms, and recognizing all the certain blood tests that weren't done that are more 
uh, esoteric type of blood tests and different tests that could be done to find out what was going on with her. And I was confident with my training that I was going to find out for sure what was going on and be able to really help this woman. And I think I, at the time, I instilled confidence that, you know, I think we're going to be able to get to the bottom of this. I never saw her again. She ended her life by suicide. Wow. So it was a follow-up visit. Where is this woman? We have these tests, you know, and they said she ended her life last week. That is terrible. She never told me about any of her mental health conditions, never mentioned it. It was all about the physical health. Of course, I'm a physical health doctor, but I thought I had let this woman down. I never asked about it myself. Hmm. And a lot of physical health conditions can actually have mental health as a basis of it. And so that changed my practice. I never again saw a patient without asking mental health questions. In fact, everyone came to my office, had to fill out a mental health questionnaire. But I then realized that up to one in three people I was seeing for physical health conditions had depression or anxiety. And I realized I need to become an expert in this. If I'm seeing it that often, I'm seeing more depression than I am heart disease, more depression than gastrointestinal illness and all these things that I'm specialized to treat. And so that's when I asked the psychiatrists in our area if I could um, shadow them for a while. And I began to be able to diagnose the, all the differential aspects of the psychiatric conditions but and the mental health conditions. And then I could see their use of medicines and high doses of medicines and combination of medicines. But I didn't see a workup other than they would look to make sure thyroid testing had been done and a few things like that. And I asked them, you know, I don't see any exhaustive workup trying to find out the causes here. And they said, well, that's because there's no known cause. You know, major depression is endogenous. It seems to come from within, but we don't know the causes. And I said, well, obviously you think it's a chemical imbalance because you're using medication. They said, oh, yeah, no question. It's a chemical imbalance, but we don't know what's causing the chemical imbalance. Now, Maybe genetics, other things, but we don't know all of those underlying causes. Well, let, let me just interrupt here. You know, as a internal physician, medicine physician, that's one of your main focuses, right, is to discover, okay, well, here's some symptoms that the patient has. Right. But we want to understand what's triggering those symptoms. And you weren't really seeing that when you lo started looking at the world of mental health treatment, right? I wasn't seeing it. And, yeah. and, and what do you think is concerning about that? I mean, and, and, and like I mentioned even earlier on in the introduction, I, I was seeing a lot of that too, just like treating symptoms with medication. But from an internist or just, you know, a, an individual's perspective, like, what is concerning about not really looking at the, those root causes? Well, if we don't find the root causes, we're not going to be able to reverse those root causes and we'll never get to really transforming the patient or having a chance at eradicating the disease. We're just going to be treating a chronic illness that's never going to be completely adequately treated. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think that's kind of what I see oftentimes uh, day to day when people are, you know, going through a lot of different mental health providers and it's just like, you know, talking about their problems and then treating medic using medication. But it is this revolving door. And part of what I've seen in my career is that when people don't really address those root causes, the disease process actually continues on 
And exactly. then eventually people are, now you're stuck on a bunch of meds, but the symptoms come back with a vengeance. And now what do you do? You know, now you're really stuck in a bad place. Yeah, exactly. And of course, I didn't realize till I started doing the research that these medicines don't actually increase your ability to make more of the neurotransmitters, nor do they really help you with the receptors that would help with the synaptic activity, but they're actually plugging the reuptake channels so that more of what is short can have a chance to produce the synapse. So it makes sense short term, but if you're blocking the reuptake channels, you're actually shorting the neuron further mm -hmm. of the very substance you're trying to treat. And that's why after six months to a year, they need higher doses, they need more medicines, and it kind of produces a psychiatric cripple right. where if we would have gotten to the underlying cause and helped them find out why they're not making enough serotonin or why they don't have enough receptors, uh, we can have a far better result. So then we end up with treatment resistant mental illness, essentially, right? Exactly. So as you start looking at this problem, uh, what did you do about it? Well, uh, they told me I'd find about eight or 12 causes if I went to a university library. And I thought, well, I want to find what those eight or 12 causes are. They were able to tell me about half of them, but I wanted to know all of them. And I began to get depressed myself when I listed <laughs> cause 71 and I wasn't through yet. <laughs> 71. Here go, man. And I was writing them down in order and wanting to make sure these are true underlying causes, not just association. So, you know, I was doing my work carefully and 71 and I don't know when I'm going to get through. And I realized this is a lot more complex than just treating swollen feet and finding out the cause of the swollen feet. So I started to categorize them at that point because I wanted to be able to simplify this a little bit as part of a workup because I knew I wanted to do workups on these patients. And you wanted to make sure you didn't get more depressed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, I categorized them and I found that they could be categorized into 10 categories. And then I kept going. I got to well over a hundred different causes, but they could still be categorized in these 10 categories. And then it made it a little simpler to be able to do the workup and to do screening tests to try to find out which hits were operative. What I found out in the process by studying my own patients, that it usually took four or more categories of hits before the brain started to experience mental illness. And uh, that was more than I thought. I thought maybe just one of these could mm -hmm. tip a person over, but our brain's pretty resilient. So it can withstand a lot of different stuff. But after four categories of causes or more are involved, then we start seeing depression, anxiety, and the more categories involved, the greater the, the severity. And then, of course, we documented that among thousands of patients and actually published it in a peer-reviewed journal, the Journal of the American uh, lifestyle medicine. And this is um, something that uh, no one really had, you know, exhaustively looked at before. I didn't realize I was the first person to really do that exhaustive literature search and start these categories. <laughs> it took the mind of an internal medicine physician coming into psychiatry to, to help us all, all us poor uh, mental health providers out. So thank you. Thank you very much. Well, it's been very gratifying. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure our audience is chomping at the bit to find out like what 
are those 10 categories? So could we just go through those? And I'd be interested even to hear from you if you think any of these are more important than others or uh, if they're all equally important. But like you said, um, and I've noticed this too, you know, we are resilient. So it's not like just one of the, one of the hits per se um, is going to generally push someone into mental illness. Uh, but usually if several factors are there, that's where people really uh, go into mental illness. Yeah. So some of them are things that most people will know about, and that is genetics and adverse childhood experiences or developmental hits. Mm -hmm. And so even, you know, the psychiatrists I was rotating with were familiar with those aspects. But there are so many ones that are more reversible. You know, we can't go back and create a, a new conception and new genes. We can't go back and um, live the person's childhood for them over again. Those things are there. The good news is that epigenetics can actually shut down those bad genes. And so even though we have terrible genes, it, gen genetics is not enough to cause depression. We have to have other things on board for those bad genes to start manifesting themselves. So uh, the reversible hits are your lifestyle hits. These are things like uh, being on an exercise program, getting bright enough light. We actually need bright light in order to make enough serotonin uh, and uh, fresh air, uh, for instance, uh, even forest bathing uh, with getting the oils that are from fresh air that are actually mood enhancing and help our cognition. And then there's uh, things like when we're going to bed and the regularity in, in bedtime and wake time, circadian rhythm. So much of our uh, bodies and brains function has to do with these biological rhythms that are actually set by light and regularity in eating and sleeping. Can you touch on that just for a moment? Because, you know, a lot of people feel like, well, uh, as long as I get my seven hours of sleep or whatever, it doesn't really matter what time of day, uh, any expansion you can do on that. Yeah. So when we go to bed earlier, uh, more closer to when the, the sun <laughs> goes to bed, we actually make significantly more melatonin. And that, um, of course, we have to have serotonin in the daytime. So that's why the light's important. But under darkness, that serotonin gets turned into melatonin. And uh, the more melatonin we make earlier in the night, the more restorative and rejuvenating our sleep is. And it's actually better to take it yourself than getting it in a supplement. So it sounds like if we sleep at the right time, then we get that extra melatonin and that really gets us more into those deeper, more restorative stages of sleep. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. More of the Delta wave sleep. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, makes when sense. you have, when you're early to bed. So, so, so far we have the genetic and I love that idea of the epigenetics. I mean, it's, it, it's so nice because it helps us remember like, okay, even if we've been dealt kind of a bad hand, so to speak, from our parents or family, it doesn't mean that we are the product of our genes. And so there's a lot that can be modified there. Um, and then you mentioned the childhood hit, you mentioned um, lifestyle, and then uh, we talked about the circadian rhythm. And uh, let's see, was there another one you mentioned yet? Uh, not was, yet, okay. but nutrition is a big one. And so what we put into our body is vitally important in being able to have our brain make those neurotransmitters. And a lot of people, you know, think, well, if I've got a serotonin shortage, 
why doesn't the doctor just give me some IV serotonin since that's mm -hmm. the problem? Uh, that wouldn't help at all because serotonin does not cross the blood-brain barrier. It's too large. So we actually have to provide the brain the substrates and have the brain make it itself. And that is not as simply as coming in and getting an IV medicine. It'd be nice if it were that simple, but we want the blood-brain barrier to be there because that's preventing us from toxins. Mm -hmm. And But as a result of this uh, brain, actually the oldest cells in our body are in our brain. Hmm. And so the, the cells that were formed as a fetus in the womb are still alive and still going. Oh, interesting. And they are susceptible to toxicity. And so, you know, that's why we have a s totally different circulation uh, system in the brain to prevent large molecules from going across. But that means our brain has to be complete in being able to make all of these neurotransmitters themselves. And nutrition has such a role in that. It's been well overlooked. And now that the studies have been well designed and done on nutrition, we're seeing review articles in psychiatry now stating that nutrition needs to be a mainstream element of psychiatric practice. Wow. And they'll talk about if the psychiatrist isn't talking about nutrition, that they're behind the times uh, <laughs> and they're really not up to date with the science. So when you talk about those substrates for like serotonin and some of the other neurotransmitters, what's the... What kind of substrates are we talking about and what's the best way to, to get those? So uh, tryptophan is what turns into serotonin. And so we need to have tryptophan with carbs in our diet to get the tryptophan across. It's an insulin mediated mechanism. So that's why we want the carbs there. The insulin has to be there. And that's one of the keys to get the tryptophan across the blood brain barrier. There's also a specific carrier to get it across. And so we don't want too much protein. Meat has actually been shown not to increase your tryptophan levels, even though turkey might be very high in tryptophan hmm. because of two reasons. It's carbohydrate deficient. And secondly, it has large neutral amino acids, too many of those that compete for that same carrier. So it's actually saturating that carrier and not allowing tryptophan into the brain. And tryptophan is the least abundant amino acid in the diet. So if you're on a high protein diet, you're going to get even a lot less uh, tryptophan. So we want low pro lower protein, but adequate. And we want it with carbs mm -hmm. and then the right types of protein uh, to get that tryptophan across. To, to make sure that we have the carrier molecule activated with the, the insulin and, and all of that. So we need those, those carbohydrates, the healthy carbs, because mm -hmm. a lot of people nowadays are just like, okay, anti-carb, we just need to get, you know, fats and proteins and carbs are bad. But what I hear you saying is no, actually carbs are very important for the mental health. They are important for mental health. Yeah, there's good carbs and there's bad carbs, just like there's good fats and there's bad fats. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. And then, and then, like you said, the protein, obviously it's important to have some, but the animal protein has so many of the other proteins that then it's out competing and it can almost perpetuate sometimes that tryptophan uh, deficiency, even though people might be, well, you know, I need more protein, but it's not helping all the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what would you say to somebody, and, and I know we don't have the time to delve deeply into the nutritional aspect, but just a, in a nutshell, if you want the ideal diet for your mental health, 
what kind of diet would that look like? Well, actually, that's been studied. That's a good uh, question. And there's been a lot of diets that have been tried. The, the um, ketosis diet, the Mediterranean diet, the Atkins diet, the paleo diet. <coughs> uh, there's only one diet and a randomized controlled trial that's been shown to be beneficial for depression and anxiety, and that is a plant-based diet. And that starts to improve things two weeks after you start it. So uh, it's actually as quick as antidepressants, uh, maybe even a little quicker, but you'll see that spread in the scores with that being the only change in just two weeks. The other diets have not been able to do that. Now, occasionally you might see a study on the Mediterranean diet improving depression, but look at the time interval. It's gonna be months uh, mm. and it's not gonna be quite as dramatic as what you get in the randomized controlled trials with plant-based. The advantage of plant-based is just the things that we've been talking about. It's gonna have a better protein mix to get the tryptophan across. It's going to have those healthy carbs and it's gonna be loaded with antioxidants. And the antioxidants are very important in regards to mental health. We can even give antioxidant vitamins and start seeing a spread in about two weeks to a month. But those vitamins aren't near as antioxidant in a bottle as they are in whole plant foods. So whole plant foods exceeds that of the component parts that we extract from them and put in vitamin pills. And so it's a lot better to get your kale and your spinach than to try to get the vitamin E and C from those things in bottles. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it's phenomenal just in two weeks that you can see such such a difference. And some people have complained to me, well, I just don't like the, that taste. You know, I, I, I like my diet, I like meat or I like this or that. And plants just don't taste so, so good to me. What would you say to those sorts of people? Well, they need to maybe go to a cooking school because <laughs> we have found that, uh, you know, when people come and eat our plant-based diet, they're amazed on day one at how good it tastes. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times people think they just need to be like rabbits. It's just <laughs> lettuce and carrots that they're eating kind of in a raw state. And they don't realize that uh, there is a, you have more variety uh, in a plant-based diet that's well cooked and it's actually going to not sacrifice taste. And if you can be healthier and tastier, then there's no reason to go back the other way. Absolutely. Yeah, well, it's nice to, to hear that you've seen that firsthand when people actually taste the difference and they feel the difference that often they're willing to make those changes. So we've talked about five. What are the other uh, five hits? So addiction hits, uh, whether it's a sexual addiction or a gambling addiction or pornography or a substance addiction like alcohol, opioids, benzos, um, those are going to be a definite hit that is going to alter brain chemistry in some pretty adverse ways, particularly in regards to the dopamine receptor aspect of things. Then we have toxic hits. There are toxins that are being neglected today, uh, particularly we're seeing a lot of people with excess copper, mercury, uh, those sorts of things that can um, have a real bearing in regards to mental health. And then we could put a category in there kind of stress and social part of things. Mm -hmm. And this has to do with patterns of thinking. And so in coping strategies that are both physical and in regards to reframing to be accurate and have rational and helpful and hopeful thoughts. And we don't want to have fantasy thoughts, but that's where the cognitive behavioral therapy can come in and uh, help with that. And uh, then we have uh, medical hits. 
It might be diabetes, for instance. If you have an insulin resistance, you're not going to be able to get as much tryptophan across. So we want to adequately treat those diseases, particularly through lifestyle measures. Autoimmune diseases, uh, often depression and anxiety is an is an inflammatory disease of the brain. So we'll look at inflammatory markers. Uh, of course, head trauma, uh, one of the best things for um, post-traumatic brain injury is getting on omega-3 uh, supplements for the anti-inflammatory effect. And then uh, another one that would be very important would be frontal lobe causes. This is the spiritual, the analytical part of the brain. And many people with depression and anxiety just have negative automatic thoughts. They don't even think as to whether those thoughts are rational or not, whether they're accurate or not. And that spiritual part of the brain is very important to light up so that we can be better in thinking a more accurate thoughts. And uh, even uh, for instance, church attendance and religiosity has been shown to help in improving um, depression and uh, having that um, spiritual life. And so uh, out of those that are the most important, uh, I would probably say, since you asked that question, maybe because they're the most neglected, I would call mm -hmm. them the most important, but I would say nutrition and frontal lobe. Mm -hmm. uh, those two are largely neglected in psychiatry today, but they have, some of the biggest bang for the buck as far as effectiveness. Absolutely. Now, I really appreciate that. And, you know, one comment I wanted to make on the addiction piece, that can be a, a real downward spiral too, because a lot of people start self-medicating with addictions when they don't feel so good. And then the addiction worsens the mental health problem. Absolutely. I mean, certainly the addiction can come first and cause it, but sometimes it's just this downward spiral. Exactly. So, um, you know, thinking about, so we touched on the nutrition a little bit more extensively, but the, the frontal lobe piece, you mentioned the automatic negative thoughts and uh, yeah, just the distorted thinking that can perpetuate or cause frontal lobe dysfunction. Are there any other specific things that uh, you, you would like to mention that can really cause problems with the frontal lobe? Well, even our choices of music, for instance, um, the, uh, the most popular music today actually suppresses the frontal lobe of the mm. brain. And uh, that's the continual syncopated rhythm. So you have a signature in a lot of the music today. It's not just a measure or two of syncopation uh, like it used to be, which is not really harmful at all. Uh, but it's just uh, the continual boom cha that goes throughout <laughs> the entire piece. <laughs> and that boom cha, boom cha, boom cha. Uh, once you get 90 seconds of that going on, you'll see the frontal lobe start to go down. And it's not only going down while you're listening to it, but the after effects have also been shown to be very much there. Hmm. So it decreases your caring, it decreases your energy level, it decreases um, a lot of you know mental health aspects of things. And so uh, one of the things we do that's pretty simple is just... Um, changing or listening to music that's actually healthier for us and it can make a big difference there wow yeah it, it is phenomenal and what what is the optimal type of music for people to enhance their frontal lobe it needs to be melodious music and harmonious music where it's not dissonant it's more consonant now you can have dissonance as far as it transferring from one phrase to another but when it's centering in on the dissonance that's also not good even though there might not be um, behind it. And if the music tells a story, if you can kind of imagine a scene, uh, interestingly, more of the 
um, movie music, if we just look at some of the music scores, that can be healthier for you um, than actually watching the movie uh, where you have the the rapid scene of reference changes mm -hmm. that actually also cause some frontal lobe suppression. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, you want to touch at all on the, the, the media element and how that could can affect does that affect the frontal lobe as well? It does, particularly the way a technology is used today where we have all this distractibility aspect of things. So people will get on their smartphone to do something and then right away they'll see some text and then they'll forget as to why they got onto their smartphone. And as they're looking at those texts, some push notifications come in. And then they go there to the Internet. And all of a sudden, they see several things there that they weren't planning on that are quite appetizing to them. And they're continually being distracted. And that suppresses an area of the brain called the anterior cingulate gyrus of the frontal lobe. And that's the area of our brain that we need to manage distressing emotions. So if we can't pay attention, which, you know, the culture of today, everyone gets ADHD, the normal use of devices. Yeah. And ADHD people do have problems managing their emotions because their anterior cingulate gyrus is affected. But fortunately, that can be reversed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, but we have to get them away from the media and the normal use of the media. And it'll take a number of weeks, but about six weeks, we can, we can see some significant dramatic improvement in the brain already starting to occur. Well, it, may, it really makes me think, too, because the anterior cingulate cortex uh, also is involved with uh, empathy and being able to empathize, connect with other people. And we wonder sometimes, you know, why are is there so much anger and chaos going on in, in our world today and people are really treating each other in such spiteful angry ways, uh, do you think media could be a big part of that? Oh, it's a major part of it, yeah. The polarization of humanity in regards to uh, distorted thoughts about each other <laughs> is very much driven by the way uh, people use media today. So Dr. Nedley, um, now that you've been applying you know, this uh, 10 hit approach uh, to demolish uh, mental illness uh, over the last, uh, I don't know, how many years has it been now? About well, 20 uh, years or so? Yeah, it's actually uh, more than 20. Yeah, wow. we're, uh, we started this approach actually in the uh, mid uh, to late 90s. So. Okay, wow. So Yeah, we're, we're getting up on 30. That's amazing. <laughs> so you've been really applying this uh, approach for a lot of years now, for decades really. Uh, what are some of the results uh, that you've seen as you've applied this approach to really addressing those root causes for mental illness? Well, you know, the group that we've studied probably the most is our community-based program group where we've trained facilitators and coaches. And we're actually not part of it. We're just giving them the principles and then they're kind of coaching them through those sessions. And they have to take pre and post depression and anxiety assessment tests. But just the mental health education program produces an 85% response rate in both depression and anxiety. Wow. And that is, you know, pretty gratifying because it's very low cost. And it is also, you know, essentially side effect free. And it can be used with medicine or without medicine. But just the application of those principles in an educational program uh, produces a pretty significant response. Now, of course, we can get better than that if they were to you know be in a residential facility where we can do their blood work and 
and we can uh, have specific forms of CBT that they might not understand that can help them in the more comprehensive approach. But the fact that the vast majority of Americans wouldn't even need that, Mm -hmm. they just need to be educated and engaged in mentally healthy activities, it will actually enhance their lives in so many other ways. It's been gratifying to be a part of all of that. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of those results uh, firsthand uh, working with in, in, in your clinic and seeing those results and also even the community program. And then, of course, we use those same principles here at Beautiful Minds. So I'm sure some of our audience is saying, wow, this is amazing. I want to really not only learn about it, but how to apply it. What, what would you say to someone that's wanting to take that next step uh, in really applying these principles uh, to their to their lives? Uh, are there places that they could go to learn more and to maybe engage in uh, these uh, programs? Yeah, if they go to our website, uh, nedleyhealth.com and uh, look at programs. Um, so we have depression and anxiety online programs. We have community programs that would be good in their local area. If there's a trained facilitator, they might be able to see when those are going on and actually interact face-to-face with people in a coaching uh, type approach. Uh, And then they could also uh, look for uh, residential possibilities uh, there as well. All right, well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Really appreciate it. And uh, I really have been inspired to continue to address the mental health problems that we see around us in a holistic way. Thank you very much, Dr. Binus. It's a real pleasure being here. So if you only take one thing away from today's show, remember this, if mental illness is a whole person problem, then it must have a whole person solution. I'm Dr. Daniel Binus. And I'm Dr. Neil Nedley, and you have been listening to The The Brain People Podcast. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, find us on social media, or support us financially, visit thebrainpeoplepodcast.com.